There's a deep longing inside the soul of every human being. A longing for something transcendent, something beyond this world, beyond this mortal life. It is a longing for something eternal. It is a longing for God. And yet because we are all born separated from him, we naturally try to satisfy that longing with other things. Temporary things that of course can only satisfy temporarily. Knowing that, Jesus posed this question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Mark 8, 36. You understand what Jesus was saying there, right? Your, your soul is more important than the entire world and everything in it. Because this world and everything in it is not only temporal, material, but it is also temporary. Your soul, on the other hand, is eternal. And look, something that is eternal will never be satisfied by something that is temporary. Which is why Jesus Christ, with unrelenting compassion, continues to reveal himself to humanity. He does it through nature, Romans 1.20. He does it through his word, 2 Timothy 3.15 and 16. He does it through his own people, the body of believers, John 13.35, as we carry the very spirit of Christ himself within us, Romans 8.9-11. You understand, only Jesus Christ can slake the spiritual thirst of the human soul. All other pursuits leave us wanting. All other pursuits leave us spiritually threadbare, eternally bankrupt. And this is what sets followers of Jesus Christ apart from followers of everything else. It's not just our doctrine. It's not just our sacred scripture. And it's not just our sincere faith. And what makes followers of Christ different than followers of everything else is the fact that we have the spirit of the living God living inside of us. Which, by the way, brings about changes that are clearly evident in the lives of those who have, in fact, received that spirit. And listen, it has to. It has to. There's no reality where you actually receive the Holy Spirit and yet remain unchanged. There's no such thing as becoming a Christian, which you understand always means receiving the Spirit of God, coming and living inside of you, right? The Apostle Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. When you're born again, obviously, uh, it's not a little Jesus that comes and lives in your heart, right? No, it's the Spirit, His Spirit that comes and lives inside of you. And look, there is no such thing as that happening. And then you stay the same as you were before that happened. It would be impossible, and honestly, it would be absurd to believe that you could have the living Spirit of the God who created the universe enter in to you without it fundamentally changing you. That's why Christians are different, you see. It's not because we, uh, we believe in something. Everybody believes in something. No, what sets us apart is the fact that what we believe in is not just something. What we believe in is someone. 
and that someone has taken up residence inside of us fundamentally, supernaturally, irreversibly, and eternally altering our spiritual DNA. There's no way around it. Truly born-again people are truly changed people. And those changes are so dramatic, so life-altering, and so clearly evident that they show up in how we live from day to day, as we're going to see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the gospel according to Mark. Okay, you simply cannot be a Christian without being changed. Which Jesus not only teaches his followers, but he shows them as well what those changes look like and how they're manifested in their lives from day to day. And this is a long chapter that we're working through, so I'm going to break this sermon up into at least two parts, today being part one, and then we'll see if we can work through uh, the rest of the chapter nine next week. But look, uh, uh, look, it's a fair question. For someone to ask you today, if you profess to be a Christian, it is a fair question to ask. How have you changed since becoming a Christian? What is fundamentally different about you now having received the Spirit of Christ into your life? And listen, uh, if your answer is something along the lines of, well, you know, I believe in something now that I didn't before. Or the difference in my life is that now I'm forgiven. Well, yes, that's, that's all true. It's also a cop-out. Okay, there isn't one single person in all of biblical scripture who believed in Jesus and was forgiven of their sins, thereby receiving his spirit, who also wasn't radically changed in ways that were clearly observable by everyone who knew them. They weren't perfect, far from it, and And neither are we after receiving him, at least not through the duration of this lifetime, but we are most certainly, undeniably, and observably changed. Which raises the next obvious question, well then how are we changed, right? And again, just to be clear, I'm not minimizing the actual uh, salvation that we experience when we come to Christ. Listen, his redeeming work in our lives is the change, right? It is the most profound and meaningful change there is. What we're talking about today is the evidence of that redeeming work, the consequent changes that occur in our lives as a result of receiving his spirit upon salvation, which is profoundly critical for this world to see in us. Because the fact is, other people cannot see your faith. They cannot see the fact that you've been forgiven. What they can see, however, is the radical changes in your life that have occurred because of that faith and forgiveness that his spirit is now working inside of you. So what does that kind of change look like from day to day? How are we actually changed by his spirit? That's what we're going to learn today and next week as we pick up the story where we left off last time. And it matters. Listen, it matters that we get this. Because we're surrounded by human souls who are longing for an eternal change in their own lives and yet they have no idea that Jesus Christ is that change. And unless they witness that change firsthand in us, how will they ever know? Mark chapter 9, we'll begin by reading the first 13 verses. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. If you were here last week, uh, you'll remember that Jesus' disciples, although witnessing Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle, seeing him command the weather, right? Uh, Walk on water, cast out demons, heal the sick, feed thousands of people with nothing more than a few handfuls of bread and fish. Twice, by the way. They're still unable to see beyond themselves, beyond their own natural abilities, beyond their own basic needs and selfish desires. They have yet to grasp the fullness of who Jesus is and what they, in fact, were becoming because of him in their lives. Right, Just after seeing him feed massive crowds of people with a few loaves of bread and some fish on two separate occasions, right after that they were worried about not having enough bread with them on the boat as they traveled across the lake. And then just after professing that Jesus was in fact the Christ, the Messiah, they presumed to rebuke him over his mission to save the world because he said it was going to involve rejection and suffering. Despite all they've been taught and witnessed so far, these disciples are still unchanged in many ways. And so Jesus lets them have it with both barrels more than once, as we saw last week. And you get the sense at the end of the last chapter that they're a bit deflated as he speaks these final words of chapter 8 after assuring them that they too would suffer because of following him. He says, for whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, you may not always like me or what I have to say, but if you actually reject me or what I have to say, then I in turn will reject you. This was not one of their better days. As these disciples get yet another stern rebuke from Jesus, which is what makes the next words out of his mouth so encouraging and so hopefully, as he says here in chapter 9, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so he reassures them that the way things are is not how things will remain. Change, Jesus says, is coming. And I just want to pause here for a moment to comment on this statement, this verse by Jesus, before we continue in the story, because there are a number of leading theories by scholars about which event Jesus was referring to 
when he made this statement. He was clearly, by the way, not referring to his second coming. Uh, because, first of all, all of those disciples have long since been dead. And Jesus has yet to return, which is why he didn't say, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until you see me return with power. He didn't say that. No, he said until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So he's not referring to the second coming. Then, uh, then what is he referring to, right? Well, some say it was the transfiguration, which we just read about and we're going to talk about more in a moment. And yet this transfiguration, according to Mark, happens just six days after Jesus makes this statement, which means he would have been saying to his disciples, some of you are not going to die in the next week until I'm transfigured. Which doesn't make a lot of sense because none of them died that week. And yet you can certainly see how the kingdom came in power in the transfiguration. In fact, there's no other point in Jesus' life prior to the resurrection where his glory was so powerfully manifested. And beyond that, Peter himself refers to this very event in his second letter to the churches where he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were made known to you uh, the power, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about the transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. So obviously, Peter considered this event to be the fulfillment of Jesus' statement, at least to him and James and John at the time. But was that the only fulfillment of this promise that Jesus made? And was it only for those three? There are those who say that Jesus was referring to his resurrection, where the kingdom certainly comes in power. And yet only Judas had died at that point. Uh, same with the next theory that many hold, which is that Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit baptism at Pentecost, uh, where there's no question that the kingdom came in power, and yet still only Judas had died at that point, which brings us to the final theory, uh, which is that Jesus was referring to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 and the sacking of Jerusalem by the Romans, where the church was miraculously delivered uh, from the slaughtering of the Jews that occurred in that event. Interestingly, uh, the 3rd and 4th century historian Eusebius wrote of the church's escape. He said, the whole body, however, of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by a divine revelation given to men of approved piety there before the war, removed from the city and dwelt at a certain town beyond the Jordan called Pella. The 4th century church father Epiphanius also wrote of the same event, saying that the Christians in Jerusalem were actually warned, he said, by an angel to escape the city, which, of course, does not disagree with Eusebius's account. Uh, and then the 18th century British Bible scholar Adam Clark wrote, I'm quoting, It is very remarkable that not a single Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem, though there were many there when Cestius Gallus invested the city. And had he persevered in the siege, he would soon have rendered himself master of it. But when he unexpectedly and unaccountably raised the siege, the Christians took that opportunity to escape. As Vespasian was approaching with his army, all who believed in Christ left Jerusalem and fled to Pella and other places beyond the river Jordan. And so they all marvelously escaped the general shipwreck of their country. Not one of them perished. 
and look, this was unquestionably a miraculous deliverance of the church by God, and for the first time in its young history, the church was established as its own entity rather than being considered merely a subset of Judaism. It was indeed a powerful display of God's hand at work in the church even as his judgment was brought to bear on the Jews. And of course, at that point, some of the disciples had been martyred for their faith, which has led many to believe that this is the event Jesus was referring to in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Okay, so which is it then? Which event was Jesus referring to when he made this statement about his kingdom coming in power? Well, the truth is, the truth is we don't know for certain. And yet I would like to respectfully throw my hat into the ring here because I think it is uh, narrow-minded for us to say that Jesus could only be referring to a singular event when he made this statement. In other words, I personally believe it was probably all of the above and then some. Listen, the, the final verse in John's Gospel says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written, John 21, 25. The fact is, from the moment Jesus began his work on this earth, his kingdom was being increasingly revealed in power, especially to those first disciples who were with him, and which continued long after his ascension to heaven. There is no reason for us to have to limit this statement to one event as Jesus revealed his kingdom in power to those disciples over and over and over again, which ultimately, of course, changed them forever, which is the point, really. The fact that no matter what event or events he was referring to, we know that his words were in fact fulfilled because of the undeniable changes that occurred, the observable changes that occurred later in the lives of his disciples. And so with that in mind, back to the story, as six days later, Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up to the top of a high mountain. That was probably Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon is near Caesarea Philippi. It towers over all of the other mountains in Palestine. It's over 9,200 feet in elevation. It's uh, perpetually capped with snow, which would explain why the disciples were sleeping when Jesus was first transfigured, according to Luke's account of this same story, because they're exhausted from climbing this exceptionally tall mountain. And so <clears throat> they wake to see Elijah, who 900 years earlier was carried up into heaven in a chariot of fire, and who represents the prophets. And then they see Moses, who died 1,400 years earlier, being denied entrance into the promised land, and now standing on top of a mountain with Jesus in the promised land, who also represents the law. So just to be clear, the sum of the Old Testament revelation of God is standing there on top of this mountain with Jesus, all in a glorified state, having a conversation, again, according to Luke, about Jesus' coming death at Jerusalem. In other words, the very thing that Peter rebuked Jesus for talking about was the very thing that Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about, which I'm sure made Peter who was already terrified, feel even worse. And so completely befuddled and scared half out of his mind, Peter starts babbling about putting up some tents for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us that as Peter was talking, as he was saying this, the cloud of glory overshadows them. Listen, 
It's the very same ancient word that the angel Gabriel used to describe the power of God through the work of the Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary when it came time for her to carry the Messiah in her womb in Luke 1.35. That very same overshadowing power of the Spirit of God envelops these three disciples on the top of that mountain as the voice of the Father thunders, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And as tempting as it is to believe that that statement by the Father was directed right at Peter more than the others, I think actually it was for all of them equally because in reality, I believe the biggest difference between Peter and the other disciples was the simple fact that Peter was the only one brave enough or stupid enough, depending upon your perspective, to do and say what the rest of them were already thinking most of the time. In fact, if you look back at Jesus' rebuke of Peter in chapter 8, Mark says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Jesus may have been specifically referring to what Peter had just said in that rebuke, but the message was meant for all of them. Why? Because they were all thinking the exact same thing as Peter. He was simply the only one bold enough to actually say, what they were thinking, and as a result, he was the one always getting in trouble with Jesus. I think that's probably the case here as well on this mountain. And so now they come back down the mountain, and on the way, of course, having just seen Elijah, they asked the question, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That's a reference to the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, uh, verses 5 and 6, which predicts the coming of Elijah before the second coming of Christ. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Yet another reference of the suffering to come, just to drive the point home to the disciples. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him, which is a reference by Jesus to John the Baptist, who according to Luke 1.17 came in the spirit and power of Elijah, preceding this first coming of Jesus. And so, look, he's showing them through Peter's confession in chapter 8, through his transfiguration on top of the mountain here, and through the ancient prophecy of Malachi 500 years earlier that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the one our souls long for. And yet, although the disciples have placed their faith in Jesus, they certainly believe in him, and they've been following him, his teaching and his instruction. They've experienced his ministry firsthand. In fact, they've even participated in it. And yet, after all of that, they have yet to be truly changed, which is evident in how they continue to live their lives, the things they continue to say and do, all reveal the fact that these men have yet to be fully Changed, And so Jesus takes them high up on a mountain to show them what real change looks like. It is utterly transforming and directly tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. As they're going to find out, uh, none too soon at Pentecost, right? When the Spirit of Christ takes up residence within them, the change is as dramatic at that point inside of these men as it was in Jesus that day on the mountain. And yet at this point, they still haven't experienced that dramatic change. And, and so it's important for us to understand, uh, listen, the, the same is true of many who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior today. They believe in him, they follow him, they've experienced his ministry firsthand, they even participate in it. 
and yet their lives are basically the same now as they were before they started following Jesus. But why? Why isn't there an observable change in their lives? Well, it comes down to whether or not there's actually been a transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You see, it's one thing to believe in Him, to follow His teachings, even to participate in His ministry. It is something altogether different to allow His Spirit to take up residence inside of you upon truly being born again, truly saved. When that happens, there are no exceptions. The change is dramatic and it is undeniable. And look, it would it would prove to be the same for these disciples, but it wasn't time for that yet as Jesus continues teaching them and showing them what those changes will look like in their lives when they do come, and we'll, uh, as we'll see. So let's keep reading, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. These are the other disciples now who didn't go up to the top of the mountain with Jesus. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately why we could not cast it out. And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So Jesus and his disciples complete the long descent down the mountain, only to find that the scribes have shown up among a crowd of people, and they're arguing with the other disciples because the disciples were unable to cast a demon out of a boy. And so Jesus tells the boy's father, bring him to me. And he does what the disciples then were unable to do. Of course, he casts out the demon. And then later that day in private, the disciples asked Jesus why they were unable to exercise the power necessary to cast out the demon. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Why? Well, because there's power in prayer. James, the brother of Jesus, said the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James 5, 16. The apostle John said, and this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we've asked of him. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Of course, Jesus himself said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 14, listen, 
there's tremendous power in prayer because when we pray, we are working through the Holy Spirit in us and as a result, the Holy Spirit in turn works through us. The Apostle Paul said, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know how, uh, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, Romans 8, 26. When we pray through the Spirit, the Spirit works through us and the net result is power in our lives. Luke describes a scene in Acts 4 where Peter and the other disciples devote themselves to prayer, specifically prayer for boldness. And he says that when they'd prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 4.31. In the very next chapter, after this time of prayer, Luke says that people were being saved in droves and then bringing their sick and demon-possessed to the apostles. And he says there were multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them Acts 5 14 and 15 when he describes Peter's shadow falling on some of them guess what that phrase is in the ancient Greek it's the exact same word that describes the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary when Jesus is conceived in her and the exact same word that describes the Holy Spirit overshadowing Jesus and Moses and Elijah and his disciples on the top of that mountain. Are you getting it yet? When you pray, you're working in and through the Holy Spirit who in turn works in and through you, which results in overwhelming power in your life, which is exactly what Jesus was teaching and demonstrating to his disciples in our story. Do you know, by the way, do you know what Luke says Jesus was doing that brought about the transfiguration, that overwhelming display of glory and power on the top of that mountain? Luke 9, verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. The transfiguration, Jesus' greatest display of glory and power before the resurrection was a direct result of prayer. It is an undeniable fact when you're truly changed by the Holy Spirit inside of you and you pray. Your life is marked by power. Power, by the way, unlike anything else in this world, a power that actually changes things. So look, do you want the power uh, to change your circumstances? Then you must first be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you want the power to change your marriage? Then you must first be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you want the power to walk through the most difficult times in your life with overwhelming peace and strength? Then you must first be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And look, if you want to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you must learn to pray, to pray deeply, to pray desperately, and to pray often. Because there's power in prayer when the Holy Spirit is involved. Listen, you, you show me a believer who has no power working in their life, and I'll show you a believer who doesn't pray. The disciples couldn't cast a demon out of the boy because they didn't pray. 
On the Mount of Transfiguration, they were sleeping while Jesus was praying. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they were sleeping while Jesus was praying. In the second storm on the Sea of Galilee, they were panicking while Jesus was praying. You see, they hadn't yet learned the power of prayer because they hadn't yet tapped into the Holy Spirit in the way they would at Pentecost. And so they're unable to affect meaningful change in the life of that young boy. And listen to me, you won't be able to affect any meaningful change in your own life or anyone else's for that matter until you learn to pray through the Holy Spirit inside of you. On the other hand, when faithful prayer becomes your passion, you will move mountains in your life according to Jesus. It's part of the change that occurs when the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you and you pray through him. Again, as Paul describes in Romans 8, 26. And so your first answer to the question, how have you changed since you became a Christian? What is fundamentally different about you now from before? The first answer to that question should be power. I have power in my life with the Holy Spirit of Christ inside of me, a power that I never had before. And if they ask you how you access that power, the answer is prayer. And listen, maybe, uh, maybe before you let someone else ask you that question, maybe it would be a good idea to ask yourself that question first. Am I living a life full of supernatural power that only comes from the Holy Spirit or do I actually feel powerless most of the time? When I'm faced with truly difficult circumstances, do I tap into the power I need to guide me through those circumstances or even to change those circumstances or do my prayers feel like empty requests I'm sending up to God somewhere in the hopes that he might answer? Or most dangerous of them all, Am I so absolutely dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me that I could not possibly make it through one single day of this life that he's called me to without it? Or am I managing my life quite comfortably under my own steam? And just to be completely honest, I fear this is the case for many in the church today. Those who either don't believe they need or maybe don't even realize they're actually living without the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Theologian and author Sam Storms wrote, there's little hope for success in gospel ministry if the people of God strive in a power of their own making. Look, uh, the hard truth is, you cannot answer the call of God to live as a disciple of Christ by your own power. You simply cannot. Which means if you are living your life today, listen, if you are living your life today by your own power, then you are decidedly not answering God's call on your life. Because you can't answer his call in your life without his power working in you. And yet I'm afraid that's exactly what many of us try to do. We set goals that are reasonably attainable by our own efforts. We live lives that don't require any supernatural power. And consequently, we fill our souls with temporal things and temporary things without even realizing it. We believe in him, we follow him, we experience his ministry firsthand, we even participate in it, and yet our lives are basically the same now as they were before we started following Jesus, unchanged. Listen to me, that is not the life that God has called you to live. 
No, he's called you to live a life of power, supernatural power that only comes through the Holy Spirit within you, a life that is so radically dependent upon that power that no one could ever question whether or not you've actually been changed by it because it will be glaringly obvious to everyone who knows you. That's the way it's supposed to be. C.S. Lewis once said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Is that true of you? If those people who knew you before you began following Jesus and still know you today, if those people were asked, what is different about you now from before? If they were asked, what has changed in your life? Would they without hesitation talk about the obvious power that you seem to have within you since you began following Jesus? Would they talk about your prayers that actually seem to change circumstances, prayers that bring provision into your life, prayers that bring healing and restoration and answers in your life and in other people's lives? You understand, that's all God's doing as we access Him in us. That's all Him. Would they openly talk about that undeniable power that they see and experience in you? Or would they say, well, I don't know. I'm not sure what's changed in him now, in her now. I'm not sure, but you know, he says that he has faith. She says that her sins have been forgiven. Other than that, I, I can't really tell a difference. Listen, how far do you think the church would have gotten in the first century if it had simply been a feckless, powerless religious organization? If those first disciples had never received the Holy Spirit and then walked out the rest of their lives without the unavoidable power that we certainly see in the book of Acts and beyond, who would have joined them? Who would want to be a part of something like that without the power needed to actually carry it out? And yet we wonder why people are becoming less and less interested in the church today. But honestly, why would anyone want to do all of this if there were no power in it? No power to affect any real change in people's lives. Because I'm telling you, people aren't simply looking for something to believe in today. And they certainly don't recognize their own need for forgiveness and yet somewhere deep inside of them, their souls are longing for something they cannot find in this world. Something transcendent. Something powerful. Something eternal. That is the kind of change that people are looking for. They're hungry for. Desperate for, in fact. And it's the kind of change they really need to see in you. There's no way around it. Truly born-again people are truly changed people. There's no reality where you actually receive the Holy Spirit and yet remain unchanged. So ask yourself, am I different today than I was before, before Jesus? And if so, how? What can people clearly see in me now that I'm following him that is different than how I used to be? Has there been a real transformation in my life, one that is marked by an undeniable power, a power that is not only obvious to me, but to everyone around me. It's a question that every follower of Jesus Christ would do well to ask themselves. 
Am I truly changed? Let's pray.